If you have your Bibles, I do invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians. We are continuing our study of uh, the letter to the Corinthians. There are a lot of voices um, that are coming at us every minute, it feels like, of every day. They're all trying to gain our attention. Um, These voices out there are telling us to listen to them, to put our trust in them, um, to trust them on how to live life. And with added technology, uh, with the, the growth of various media outlets, you know, even individuals now, you know, can use media and, and it serves as a, a megaphone uh, for their, their voices. Paul tells us um, to be careful. Uh, these are not just voices, uh, but these are often ideologies. They are philosophies that have the potential of smuggling uh, into our hearts complete worldviews, often worldviews that are hostile. Uh, They're hostile to God. They're hostile um, uh, to to the gospel. Paul tells us that we should not lose heart. There's no need to despair. Rather, we should see what is happening. We should recognize uh, how the, the world is changing, how the culture is, you know, feverishly at work, and we should turn to the Lord. This should be a call for us to turn to the Lord, to turn to his word. There is a way out of the confusion, and there are spiritual weapons um, that are mighty. There are spiritual weapons that are powerful, uh, the apostle tells us. They are available um, to help shine divine light on the truth, to help bring clarity in the midst of the confusion, um, and to achieve all that God uh, sovereignly uh, desires to achieve. And so, you know, and, and just to back up for a moment, this is why we're here. This is still, you know, a lot of people say, is preaching even necessary in the modern world? Absolutely, it is. It is. Here, what are we doing? We're coming inside a room. Most of us have our phones on silent, at least, <laughs> maybe turned off. But you're giving full attention just for this little space of time to the Word of God. That is so, it's increasingly important, not less so, with the modern um, situation. So we're coming to, um, actually, it's just uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, um, and so that's as far as I'll read. Would you stand for the, the hearing of the Word of God? The Apostle Paul writes, I, Paul, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Would you pray with me? O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, would you be present in the power of your Spirit, 
Would you strengthen us in our inner person through your word? And so we pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to chapter 10 uh, this morning, we are be- um, we're beginning a new section within um, the letter of 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians can be broken up into three parts. Uh, the first part is chapters 1 through 7. There, the apostle is, is giving a, a primary um, defense of, of uh, why he's writing the book, and he's, he's covering the gospel that he believes has been under attack by a group of false teachers, these traveling false teachers, probably Jewish in background, um, who are troubling the church. So that's chapters 1 through 7. And then in 8 and 9, as one application for, the, for life in Christ, life in the new covenant, he, he exhorts the people to be generous in their giving, this very tangible display that the Spirit of God is at work in them, conforming them more and more into the image of Christ. And then as we come to this third section, this is uh, chapters 10 through 13. This takes us to the end of the letter, end of the book. Now he's, he, so for the first nine chapters, he's, he's um, been addressing primarily the majority of the church that have responded well to his previous letter of, uh, a, a letter of correction and uh, of uh, a call to repentance. The majority of the, the Corinthians have responded well to this, but there's still this minority of false teachers that are causing problems uh, within the church. And so in chapters 10 through 13, that's his primary target now. That's his primary audience. He always has the whole church in view, of course, but, but his primary audience now, he's turning his attention um, to these false teachers. In these opening verses, Paul is directing his words uh, to uh, not just false teachers, but those who may be following uh, the, them. He wants them to know, contrary to the charges of these false teachers, the accusations that have been made against him, that he is, in fact, modeling a Christ-like attitude um, towards the Corinthians, okay? And so um, we have to remember, again, just the background. Um, previously, um, and, and I've already addressed this, but, but previously, there was this group of traveling teachers. And um, again, they're, they're probably Jewish in background, and that has led them uh, most scholars believe to have kind of brought some Jewish elements, highlighting the requirements of the law of Moses that the Christians must obey in order to gain God's freedom, to gain God's forgiveness and acceptance. And so in the process, these false teachers have distorted the very gospel that Paul has taught, by which he founded the church. And more than this, because of the looming presence of the apostle, they have also gone after the Apostle Paul himself. They have to delegitimize, they have to discredit the Apostle Paul in order to secure their own standing among the people. And so part of um, uh, what they've been saying is something like this. If Paul were a true, spirit-filled follower of Jesus, he would not be causing so much trouble wherever he went. He wouldn't be shamefully persecuted so much. Is, this, is Paul's example, the way it just provokes people, is that really in keeping with the model of Jesus? 
Or they might say, hey, look, last time when the Apostle Paul visited our church and he met up with some opposition from those who have heard us teach, what did he do? He ran away. He just left. He, he up and left. And it's only from a distance, you see, uh, that this great, quote-unquote, apostle, uh, he, does he write. And he sends us these bold and weighty letters to us. But in person, he's weak. He's timid. These are the kinds of charges that appear to be um, being leveled against the Apostle Paul in order to discredit him. But here's the real issue from the Apostle Paul's standpoint. He is a commissioned apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is bringing, he is a good ambassador bringing with clarity and accuracy the words of God, the word of Christ. And if they turn away from him, it is simultaneously, it means that they're turning away from the words of life that he has been commissioned to preach and teach. So the, um, uh, what's at stake here is quite important, quite significant. And it's for this reason, I was looking at just the NIV translation of verse 1. In the ESV, it says, Paul, myself, uh, uh, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. The NIV, interestingly enough, when he says, I who am humble, well, um, the NIV um, puts that in quotation marks. And so I'm humble when I'm with you or timid when I'm with you and bold only when I am away. And what the NIV is adding here is a little interpretive uh, quotation. This is interpretive grammar um, by which they're indicating is that when Paul speaks of being humble and bold, he's mouthing, he's repeating the charges of his opponents who are making these accusations against him, that he's acting unapostle-like. He's acting, uh, his ministry seems to be without the Spirit of God. But, but what is Paul's response? It's very instructive. It's right there at the top of verse 1. I, Paul. And when he says his name, that's a way of bringing, that's the way he brings emphasis. You know, he's passionate about what he's about to say here. I, Paul, myself, entreat you, how? By the meekness and gentleness of whom? Of Christ. And this is so instructive. In the ancient world, meekness, humility were not the, 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 the important Greek and Roman virtues. In fact, um, among the ancient world, culturally speaking, meekness, humility, um, they're viewed as weakness. They're not a good thing. It's not how you make uh, an impression uh, on people. It's not the way to influence friends and win people. Um, th- this is viewed as a cultural weakness. But what Paul says is, I embrace this. Why? Because my eyes aren't, in fact, or, you know, the cues that I am taking um, about what it means to be a leader, the cues I'm taking, what it means to be a, um, a servant of Christ or even to be a man, I'm not taking my cues from the world. Where is he taking his cues from? From Christ, from Jesus. And so it's no mistake, one of the passages that has brought so much comfort to believers is when Jesus says this in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, um, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What Paul is actually telling them is, when you look at what a, a Christian leader should look like, you should look at Jesus. And that's where I am looking. That's where I am taking my cues for Christian leadership. By leaving when the apostle did. So earlier he visited the church, he received opposition. Rather than dealing with it head on, he just kind of, uh, sounds like quietly, you know, took his leave uh, in order to pray and to think through this. But in doing that, he's actually showing great patience towards this church. It is not Paul's desire to bring judgment. It's not his desire to cause a scene, to create shame uh, uh, to the people within the church. Like Jesus, he's giving the Corinthians space. He's giving them the space they need to repent in his absence so that when he does return, there will not be, hopefully, the need for the apostle to come with boldness <laughs> because he's coming. <laughs> and that's part of the last section of this book is he's announcing his uh, future visit, his third visit to the church. That's all part of this final section um, of the letter to the Corinthians. And this is such a good reminder to us. We too are in a world where there is great temptation to take our cues for what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a successful person from whom? From the non-Christian, pagan world around us. It is so easy to be, you know, whether it's television or podcasts or YouTube or whatever media outlet where you're kind of hooked into, so easy to say, oh, this is what it means to be a, a, a successful, fulfilled person. This is what it means to be a good man, a good woman. And so often the messages, they're mixture, right? They're mixture of some truth, but often rooted in a worldview that is actually hostile to God, hostile to Christ. So what do we need to do? Well, Hebrews tells us what we need to do when it says we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The word of God shows us what kind of men and women we are to be. In the person of Jesus specifically, we have a model. You want to know what a spirit-filled person looks like? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He was a man, a spirit-filled man living among wolves. You think we have opposition? <laughs> it's not new, my, my friends. It, the opposition has always been present. And in Jesus, we also have a, a, a man willing to love sacrificially, even in the face of great suffering and opposition. And this leads us to the next point, um, uh, really where Paul gets to the heart of his thinking here. He continues his response, which is directed at what, at what the evil one, what Satan is doing, what Satan is attempting to do 
within the church itself. And, and he's especially at work through these false teachers. Later, um, Paul is going to associate these false teachers with the serpent in the Garden um, of Eden. And here in, in verses 3 and following, he once again defends his ministry philosophy, which on the surface seems like he's being outdone. He's being outshone, apparently, by these later, Paul referred to the false teachers as super apostles. <laughs> Tongue-in-cheek, of course. But it appears like th- th- these, these super apostles, these are uh, uh, probably um, mostly men who have just great power, great presence. Um, they're, they're eloquent, they're intelligent, um, and, um, and in comparison, it, it appears that their Paul appears weak. <laughs> and his actual physical presence, you know, apparently Paul was not a looker. Um, apparently Paul was not, he was not very eloquent. And in terms of his style, he's being outshone uh, by these teachers. That's partly why these teachers have gained such an influence within the church. But the Apostle Paul um, uh, tells us in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. And what he means by that is that we cannot use the world's weapons to achieve spiritual goals. You know, there's a lot of uh, flashiness. There's a lot of style and outward means and methods. And, and what the Apostle Paul is, be very careful that you as the church, you as Christian uh, uh, believers and men and women, that you're not, you know, um, relying on putting your trust in means and methods to achieve God's purposes that have no actual spiritual power. They do not have the Holy Spirit um, at work in and through them. Paul's about to show them that things are not always as they seem. Things should not be judged on the basis of outward appearances. And indeed, what Paul's going to show them is unlike the outwardly impressive false teachers... He is truly using divinely empowered weapons. Divinely empowered meaning that they are mighty. They actually have power to destroy strongholds. And as he writes this, the apostles, you know, you could see, you know, um, uh, between the lines, and I'm looking at you, false teachers. I'm looking at you as those who indeed actually make use of unspiritual um, uh, means and methods. But first, using the metaphor of a good soldier, a metaphor of warfare and weapons, Paul says he is consciously not making use of the weapons of the flesh. He's making a contrast between the kinds of weapons, that is, the kinds of means that we use to achieve God's purposes, um, the kinds of weapons that either do possess the power of the Holy Spirit and contrast to those that do not possess the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. It's really that simple. He's making this distinction between strategies or means that however useful they may be in the rest of the world. And see, this is where we get in trouble. We see these, you know, like one of the key ones that the church has really bought into over the last 20 years or so is um, business marketing. Marketing works awesome for business. 
if you're not advertising, you're probably in trouble as a business. And there's a certain way, okay, so marketing is not just, no longer is it just about saying, hey, we have this product, look what it does. This is what it does, this is what it doesn't do. That's not what marketing does anymore. What marketing does is it takes a product and it associates it with our deepest felt needs. Hey, if you buy this, you know, and then in the background's the shiny sports car with, you know, this lovely woman right next to it. What's the message? You buy this, you're going to have life. You're going to have, you know, your fantasies are going to be met. The way modern marketing works is it associates products with deeply felt wants and desires and wishes. It's not even about the product anymore. And it's so tempting then for the church to use a means that is effective in the rest of the world and to think that that's the way we're going to accomplish God's purposes. That, that's the way we're going to go about achieving um, uh, uh, God's uh, plans. Other examples of these weapons that do not have the power of the Holy Spirit. This comes from John MacArthur. He, he writes things like human reason, plans, strategies, organizations, eloquence, marketing, religious showmanship, philosophical or psychological speculation, rituals, pragmatism. Okay, pragmatism, another big one. <laughs> pragmatism is the idea that if it works, it must be right. If it works, it must be true. Someone once said that's the only um, philosophy that's original to America, pragmatism. And the church loves that. But I agree with uh, uh, John MacArthur. This is pragmatism does not have the power of the spirit or even mysticism. They're all ineffective weapons against the forces of darkness. They cannot rescue sinners from the domain of darkness or transform believers into Christ's likeness. Such weapons gain only superficial, temporary, and deceptive victories at best, okay? But God has provided us with weapons that are divinely empowered by the Spirit. Our weapons are Spirit-empowered to destroy strongholds. So first, what are the strongholds that the apostle uh, references here in verse 4, where he says they have divine power to destroy strongholds? Well, the apostle goes on, in this context, to tell us what he's thinking. And, and, and the New Testament may describe other sorts of strongholds, but what Paul has in mind in this context is verse 5. He writes, we destroy arguments. So these are the strongholds of arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So what are the strongholds that the apostle has? And, and he will say that behind these strongholds are, in fact, demonic powers. But we have to get to Ephesians <laughs> to see him address it in, in that, with that kind of clarity. But here, whether it's demonic in origin or world or human in origin, what he's really concerned about are these ideologies, these, these, thought, these ways of thinking, these uh, ways of understanding the world, understanding humankind, understanding how we ought to live in the world, how we ought to get along with one another between ethnicities, between rich and poor, between uh, uh, male and female. 
All of these are these kinds of ideologies that the apostle has in mind. In our world, um, in our American Western civilization, you know, one of the great ideologies is the ideology of naturalism. What is naturalism? Naturalism is the idea, basically, that, that nature is all that there is. Um, the only thing that is real is matter. Um, it's just the material universe. There is no invisible world. There is no God. There are no demons or angels or, and, and so forth. All that is are, are things that can be tested some in some manner, things that are uh, part of the material world. And, of course, then that denies uh, the idea that uh, of God. And, and these um, ideologies, they are deceptive. They are false. They are lying. And this, the ideology of naturalism naturally flows into relativism. You know, I was just thinking, so relativism is the idea that there's no absolute truth. And specifically, no absolute morals, no, no real morality. Because, of course, morality from the Christian uh, vantage point flows out of the very character of God. You deny God, you deny absolute morality. Now, I was just thinking, I, I used to have these conversations maybe 10 years ago frequently about issues of ethics and morality. And, and the response would be something along the lines of, that's true for you, but not necessarily for me, Right? you know what? I was just thinking about, I don't even have that response anymore. Like people just don't talk about truth anymore. Just the word itself is, is like, is somehow we've even moved away from the idea that, that truth is even a, a category. We are increasingly in a relativistic uh, culture. And of course, if all things are relative, if all there is is the world of sight and sound and the, the human senses, well, what is, there is no God. What does this mean about the meaning of life? Well, it means ultimately there is no meaning. And that leads us to another kind of ism of nihilism, that nothing really matters. Now, people don't follow that train of thinking, that philosophical line of thinking to its natural or logical conclusion. Because if they did, where would it lead? Despair. It would lead to despair. And there is this kind of, but where it does, even if you don't um, get there in your head, there is this gnawing despair in the hearts and in the souls of many. Because That's where these lying, deceptive, false ideologies lead. It eats away at the very soul of a person because we're not just physical matter. We are also spiritual. We have a spirit. We have a soul within us that hungers and thirsts for both God and for meaning, and it thirsts for eternal life itself. This is the way we have been made. But of course, the world denies this. All of these set up uh, against the knowledge of God. But here in 2 Corinthians, um, and, and I'm looking not just at this passage, but kind of the, 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 the breadth of the book, Paul describes two kinds of weapons. One I, I think of as a primary weapon, and the other is a secondary weapon. But both are, are really important. Both are, in some ways, necessary for 
for there to be an effective presence of, of, of the Spirit. Well, the first weapon that Paul makes much of, not just here in 2 Corinthians, but elsewhere in his writings, is, of course, the weapon of the Word of God. And as soon as you say the Word of God, you have to understand that in, in Paul's frame of thinking, that the Word, the very flip side of the Word of God is prayer. They, they, it's like two sides, really, of the same coin. The Word being how God speaks, how he feeds us, spiritually speaking, prayer, how we go to the Lord, how we pour out our hearts and, and we're in communion with the Lord through prayer. It's, it's two sides of the same coin. But in 2 Corinthians, we see things like in 2 Corinthians 2.17, for we are not, Paul writes, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The word of God is, is his primary calling, is to proclaim, to preach the word of God. <clears throat> the power of the word is not simply a theme in 2 Corinthians, but it's all through the New Testament. Think about, now I'm coming to Ephesians 6, the great passage about our spiritual warfare and the spiritual armor. But there's one piece of that armor that is offensive in nature. So what part is offensive? It's the sword, right? What does he say about the sword in Ephesians 6? Well, he says this. He says, uh, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation, and then he says, and the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit. So now he's coming to the offensive weapon. He's announcing that this is a divinely Holy Spirit-empowered weapon. And then he goes on to clarify. The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. And then he goes on, praying at all times in the Spirit. You see that the Spirit, the Word, and prayer, they're all connected and by the way, this is why, so in the New Testament, the word is given powers beyond just words on a page or words that you hear with the, the ear, that the word has the, the power to bring things to life. Well, why can the Bible speak of the word with this kind of language? Well, it's because the word is not a bare word. It's a word that has been inspired, and it is filled, and it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Very close relationship. Almost, if you do a study on the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and then you do a, a, a parallel study on the Word of God, you will find that what's said of the Spirit is almost in every case also said of the Word of God. Because the New Testament really weds the Word of God and the Spirit of God together. And for this reason, this is a divinely empowered weapon. In Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, a way of talking about the word of God, for it is the power of God for what? Salvation to everyone who believes, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is divinely empowered to actually change hearts. Now, if you go out without the gospel and you're just getting into an argument with somebody, what do you think are the odds that that's going to go well? Not really high. But why is it that the word of God, especially over time, it's able to penetrate those strongholds, 
It's able to penetrate the defenses. It's able to penetrate the mind and the heart because it is a divinely empowered weapon or a divinely empowered means. Jesus anticipates this in John 8, 31, where where Jesus teaches, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. There it is. The truth will set you free. Peter Lightheart, a pastor and author, was asked about the best way to read the scriptures. Because that's really partly what I'm saying here is we need a back to the Bible movement. Dr. Sweeten was talking about how people don't even know the basics um, in many respects today. Well, we need, we do need a back to the Bible movement, a back to the word of God movement. Peter Lightheart was asked, what's the best way to read the Bible? I found his answer interesting. He actually quoted from a poet, Robert Penn Warren. And he says, Robert Penn Warren's answer about the best way to read poetry is my answer to the best way to read scripture. And the poet answered, the best way to read poetry is not the first time. It's not even the 10th time. It's the 100th time. And then Peter Lightheart says, that's the best way to read scripture. Not the first time. Not the second or the fifth or the tenth, the one hundredth time. We need to allow God's word to speak, to, to inhabit us. That means listening, reading, studying. It means meditating and memorizing. But for Paul, and this also seems part of his argument through Second Corinthians, I'll only cover this briefly because he goes on to discuss the second piece, the second part of the weapon that is divinely empowered. And that's what I'm saying, this weapon of Christ-like character in word and deed, okay? Here's what I mean. It's not good enough just to, to quote Bible verses at people, but then be living, you know, like what they used to describe as a sailor. <laughs> that's no good. You know, listen to these verses while I go and, and swear everybody walks by me. That, that is not going to work for you. And the Apostle Paul, over and over, he's talking about um, his life. And in 2 Corinthians, unlike a lot of the other letters, he does say, you need to, to, to examine my example. Watch my model as I am modeling Christ. And, and, and what he's saying is that my model is consistent with the message. My model is, an, actually, it's an embodiment of the gospel. It's an embodiment of the word, an embodiment of the message. And more and more, and he's not talking about perfection here, but he is talking about honest-to-goodness improvement, <laughs> honest-to-goodness growth, in the word. The word is truth. The word sanctifies. And so if that word is truth, and we believe that, there ought to be some changes in the way we speak, and <laughs> the way we, um, in our attitudes, and the way we relate with one another. It should look a little different. It should look increasingly like Christ. 
The apostle, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him, that is the knowledge of Christ everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now here's the question. Those of you who love the word of God, is your life a fragrance? Is it an aroma of life to those who are believing as well as even to those who are perishing? Or is it just an aroma? Is it just an aroma? In chapter 6, Paul writes this, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. How? By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. There's that weapon language, but now he's not talking about the word. He's talking about the word being embodied, incarnated in and through his life and in his uh, relationships. In spite of his own weaknesses, In spite of all the suffering he had to endure, his trust, the Apostle Paul's trust, truly is in Christ. So just let me summarize it this way. You've been very patient. Like the Apostle, let us fix our eyes on Jesus as the model for who we are to be among all the many competing messages from the world today. And for spiritual goals to be achieved, we have to use Holy Spirit-empowered weapons, which here boils down to the Word of God and prayer, which is most effective when paired with a life that is embodying the Word of God, ultimately embodying Christ himself. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, I, we do desire there to be changes in our world. We desire changes within our own families, among loved ones um, that we love. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be filled with your Holy Spirit, that we would make use of the sword, which is the word of God, and that our lives would more and more be consistent with your word. Lord, we, we, we are weak. If the apostle thought he was weak, how much more weak are we? So Lord, lead us and guide us. We thank you for your mercy and for your faithfulness. And we pray all these things in the mighty and most beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.